Well, Tim said that, uh, Anna, welcome with the kids. You might be wondering, kids, more kids? Yes, you saw two of them here with me. I got two more at home. I got a 12-month-old whose birthday is tomorrow, I believe, or in two days, and then also a six-year-old. Uh, it's a joy to be here with you this morning to open God's Word, uh, really to hear what God has to say because it's His voice that we need to hear every Sunday or every day of our life. And uh, I just want to extend a thank you to Tim because we had many conversations in uh, his lovely Prius during seminary in the last couple years when I was thinking of transitioning from one church to another, from being more of a lead pastor to an associate for just the season of life that I'm in, and just praise God for a fellow like-minded brother who just helped me to think through a lot of things. Um, this morning, I want to turn your attention to the Psalms. The Psalms are real to life. I think a lot of us would say that the Psalms are one of our favorite books, and reason being is because they resonate so much with our life. It's really the personal diary of the psalmists, such as David, the sons of Korah, and so forth and so on, and they speak to us the relevant and real and the raw things of life. I believe many of us have heard the song, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, and for some of you, it might be your favorite song. It is my favorite song. And I want to share with you the story of the man who wrote this song. His name is William Cooper. And I want to tell you that in your life, just as in mine, there are hardships, careers, friendships, sickness, barriers that occur that we do not expect. And this is the life of William Cooper. So listen in as I share a little bit of his story. He lived from 1731 to 1800 during the time of George Wesley, John Wesley and George Whitfield in England, and Jonathan Edwards in America. Heartache was his companion literally from birth. Him and his brother John were only two of seven siblings to survive past infancy. At age six, his mother died giving birth to John, leaving William distraught. He moved from school to school, landing at Westminster in 1742, where he was bullied a lot by older students. He was studying for a career as a law as a young adult. He fell in love with his cousin of all people, <laughs> named Theodora, and sought her hand in marriage, but her father refused to consent to the, to the union. And this uh, lost love led him broken. As he progressed into adulthood, things grew worse in 1763. He was offered a position as a clerk of journals, but he turned down the job which led him off the rails. He experienced depression that bordered on insanity. Three times he attempted suicide, was sent to an asylum for recovery. The asylum actually turned out to be a place of grace, and isn't that where God oftentimes meets us at our lowest point, where he met Nathaniel Cotton, an evangelical believer, who cared for Cooper and showed him the love of Christ. One day at the hospital, Cooper found the Bible and opened it. His eyes fell upon Romans 3.25, which reads, Christ whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. God opened Cooper's blind spiritual eyes that day and he was converted to the saving hope in Jesus Christ. Salvation changed his hearts, but his leaning towards melancholy continued. Two years after leaving the asylum, Cooper met a slave trader turned preacher named John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. And Newton actually mentored Cooper, encouraged him, and ministered to him. There's numerous times where he, Cooper was at a suicide attempts, and really this deep depression gripped him every 10 years. And in 1773, he wrote the song, God Moves in a Mysterious Ways, which initially was entitled Conflict, Light Shining Out of Darkness. Cooper died on April 25th, 1800. Now Cooper's story makes this hymn all the more remarkable because life between the good times is full of hurt and pain. I'll say it again, life between the good times is full of hurt and pain. We live in what Jonian rightly calls a veil of tears. Relationships sour, Malignant tumors grow inside our frail bodies. Phone call shatters our dreams. The spring flowers die. Our lush summer lawns turn brown in the winter. The only thing consistent in this world is that nothing really stays the same. And Cooper lived and he wrote out of this reality. 
as much as any figure in church history. He knew firsthand that life is a warfare. And so I want to read to you the first three verses of the hymn that he wrote. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds that you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind the frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. So hardships are an inevitable part of life, just as in the life of William Cooper. It's so it is with us. The job that we expected to go a certain way does not turn out. The coworker who is constantly nagging us, the kids who do not sleep at night, the son or daughter who goes astray from the faith, the spouse who's suffering physically, the child who needs special care. Oftentimes, things do not go in our life. And have you ever asked yourself the question, why do things not go in my life the way that I want them to go? It is the reason being is because ultimately, we are not the center of our life, but God is the greater actor in our story of our life. He moves and maneuvers in ways to produce in us what we could not accomplish on our own. He moves in mysterious ways, as Cooper would say. And all that being said, it's, I think, simple either to complain or be discouraged with the hardships of life. And the reason why is because we live in a world of comparison. The root of our discouragement is that we too often look horizontally at each other, not enough vertically at Christ who can sustain us. We're created to imitate God and to look to him, but we're naturally inclined to see how the person next door is doing or the person this morning who's sitting next to you. Facebook has shown that, one study has shown that Facebook has led to widespread demise of marriages, discontentment with current life, and longing for what might have been. And Instagram tagged on to that and didn't make life any easier, right? <laughs> In this psalm, the author turns our attention to God. And friends, we need to be refreshed by this. Our gaze should always be having word to Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. And this whole psalm is layered with God's character and God's work, and so I want you to see it as we read together. So open to Psalm 116. Psalm 116, beginning with verse 1. The psalmist writes, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I'll offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the Lord, of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Let me pray as we begin. Father, we thank you this morning that we could gather and we could hear these words of life. And your word is perfect, reviving the soul. May you do that for us this morning. Incline our heart to your testimonies. Open our eyes to behold the wonderful things from your law, and more so, open our eyes to behold the glory and the beauty of Christ who sustains us. We pray for your help in Christ's name. Amen. My desire this morning is that as with the psalmist going through the fires of life, 
knowing that God has his hand on a thermostat, that we come out on the other side asking this question in verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? See, our passage is outlined in four sections. In the first four verses, we see love for God. The psalmist says, I love the Lord who has heard my prayer. Later we see in verses 5 to 7, the character of God. The Lord deals bountifully with his own. In verses 8 to 11, the work of God. And then lastly, concluding with thanksgiving to God. And this psalm is a a prayer of thanksgiving, a, a psalm of thanksgiving. And the idea here is that the things that happen in our life are meant to be worshipped or praised, praising God publicly. That our gratitude is not private. In verses 14 and 18, we hear the same echo. I will pay my vows to the Lord where? In the presence of all his people. We give public thanks after personal emergencies. And we know that the psalm is very personal. I, my, me, mentioned over 30 times because the psalmist is going through this in his life and he understands that God is leading him, but toward the end he realizes that his personal life is not as personal because he lives in a body and that body is the body of Christ, the church. When one member hurts, all are hurting. When one rejoices, all rejoice. We could use this psalm here, or you could use this psalm at Grace Hill after someone battles through cancer and survives. Someone goes through a hard recovery after a car accident, or someone repairs their marriage. Now, this psalm is more specifically about a man who was near death. In verse 3, the snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. And then in verse 8, for you have delivered my soul from death. And so the title this morning is, What Shall I Give to the Lord for All His Benefits to Me? Or in other words, how shall I thank or show my thanks to God? And the propositional idea I want to leave with you this morning is, from trials to thanksgiving, what you don't expect hardships to accomplish. What you do not expect hardships to accomplish. Not only does life not go as we expect, but also hardships and trials produce in us something that we don't expect either. And so I want to share with you the four fruit of trials. In the first one, we read here in the first four verses, trials increase our love for God. I love the Lord because he has heard my prayer. The very first thing that these trials cause is a love for God. Now, what would you say would be the greatest commandments in our life? Of all the things that we do coming to church on Sunday, going to small group, being discipled by somebody, going through various studies in our life, what is God seeking to accomplish in our life? He's seeking for us to become more like Christ. And what did Christ do? He loved the Father. The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God is telling us this morning, the way that I'm going to get you there first and foremost is through the trials and the hardships that happen in your life. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Where was I in that situation? I was in a very hard place. The snares of death were encompassing me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. How else do you grow in your love for God if not by walking with your shepherd in the valleys? The dark seasons of life are when God proves his faithfulness to you again and again. God takes us to places that we would not want to go to accomplish in us what we could not accomplish on our own. Now, in our context, this snares of death, they encompassed him. The pings of Sheol is an imagery of the grave You see that the psalmist is surrounded by enemies on all sides with impending death. These are both parallel phrases, a picture of a hunter with nets trying to cap, catch the victim. In other words, the psalmist is saying, I was always in danger of dying. I was filled with the fear of dying and I was afraid that I would die. Now, is this a light thing that the psalmist is experiencing This is vivid language emphasizing how desperate the psalmist was. It's not a light matter. It's the heaviness of the soul, the aching of the heart, the depression of the mind. It's that prayer that we sometimes pray to ourselves, muttering under our breath, where we say, Lord, would you take me now? There's no room to breathe. There's nowhere to go. And have you been here before in your life? 
What is there left to do in this situation? When you've exhausted the books, the advice, the substitutes to fix your issues, the psalmist does this in verse four. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. When our backs are against a wall, when we're in a corner, there's nowhere else to look. We look upwards. We look toward God who can solve our problem. He called on the name of God. God's name represents his character. And God answers. He says, he has heard my voice in verse 2. He has inclined his ear. I want to introduce you to a cycle that we see in the psalm. And the cycle is fourfold. It goes something like this. The hardships that happen because of just life. Life brings hardships in our life. Lead us to prayer because of our state. We're helpless and needy. Leads to an answer because of God's character. And ultimately brings us towards thanksgiving because of God's acting. I want to say it again, hardships because of life. Lead us to prayer because of our state. Answer because of God's character and thanksgiving because of God's acting. The psalmist prays because he understands he is but dust. I called on the name of the Lord. The reason why, verse 6 gives us an answer. The Lord preserves the simple. The Lord preserves the one who is not proud, not self-sufficient, and the one who is not praying. He preserves the one who is simple. The one who understands their frailty and their need. The one who, like a child, is unable to care for themselves and understands that. Over time in my life of having one kid where the Lord was teaching me humility, and then the second one teaching me humility, and the third, you know, the lesson's always humility. It's like, Lord, can I get a new lesson, please? Why is it always humility? The Lord was teaching me to depend on him through these hard circumstances in my life where children weren't sleeping through the night for about five years total. I'm like, okay, Lord, I think I'm getting it. <laughs> There's really one person who forgets that they're weak and helpless. There's one person who forgets that they need to lean on the Lord. And the one who, person who forgets is you and I. We forget our state we forget who we are. We think we can accomplish great things in life, and the Lord constantly has to show us who we really are. That our strength really comes through Christ who lives within us. God knows who we are, but we at times forget. We have plans and purposes for our life that we want to accomplish without God's intervention. And so through this phrase, we come back to the reality that God is the greater actor in our life. I just want to read to you a few, a number of verses speaking about God here in our, in our psalm. In verse one, because he has heard, God has heard. In verse two, he inclined his ear. Verse five, gracious is the Lord. Verse six, the Lord preserves me. He saved me. In verse seven, the Lord dealt bountifully. In verse eight, you have delivered my soul from death. Who is acting in this psalm? God is acting. Beyond what the psalmist is doing, God is the one who is the greater actor of his life. And so for the psalmist, as for us, God takes us to places that we wouldn't want to go. Let me give you a few examples from Old Testament. We know a man named Moses. God took him to a place that he didn't want to go. Was Moses so joyously saying, Lord, I'm going to go and I'm going to be your spokesperson and the one that you're going to use to lead your people out of Egypt? That really wasn't the case. We see David, a shepherd boy who is anointed to be king, yet Saul pursues and tries to kill him. We see Hannah, the barren womb that God opens to bring hope to Israel in a nation that was not worshiping the Lord rightly. We see Lazarus who is near death and Christ waits. He makes sure that Lazarus is dead. And what was the purpose? To increase the disciples' faith and so that many would come to believe in him. You see, God is the greater actor in the storyline of Scripture, in the storyline of these men and women. The reason why Moses, David, Hannah, and Lazarus, you and I go through hard times is because God is the storyteller of our life. And so the first positive thing that trials produce is our love for God. God answers. He redeems, and the psalmist says, I love the Lord. And in verse 2, he says, because of this, I will call on him as long as I live. So before we continue to the next point, I want to ask you, have you seen God doing this in your life? Have you seen him increasing 
your love for him through the trials? Have you seen him working through the hard times in your life, or do you push those things aside? Do you try to fix it on your own, or do you lean on him? And secondly, like we read in James 1, what is your natural reaction to hardships? I'll be honest this morning with you. My natural reaction to hardships is to try to fix them. My wife doesn't like me for this. She's always like, you got a solution for everything. And I'm like, yes, that's the entrepreneur in me. That's it. I got to fix everyone else's problems. That's how God created me. And so my natural reaction to hardships isn't to be like, Lord, I'm going to lean on you right now. Just help me get through it. I'm thinking, okay, how can I fix this problem? That's going to heal this issue. That's going to fix this situation in my life. So what is our reaction? James 1, we read, do we call out to God when we, when we don't have wisdom and ask for him to lead us through it? Because in verse 17, we did read, did we not, that God, the Father, all good and perfect gifts come from the Father of lights. What is also your orientation in life? What is your orientation? Do you see that God is a great actor in your life? The purpose of life is not for God to increase your comfort. The purpose of life is so that God would glorify himself through your life. And this is what we pray. This is what Jesus taught us to pray in disciples' prayer. Lord, not, not my will, but your will be done. His will to be done on earth through us. And so second, we see the hardships of life remind us of God's character. First, they produce in us a love for God. Second, they remind us of God's character. The Lord deals bountifully with his own. <clears throat> Trials and hardships have this beautiful way of bringing us back to meditate on the character of God. In other words, to be acutely aware of his sovereignty and how much we need this in our forgetfulness. The psalmist shares three characteristics of God. Gracious is the Lord, the first one in verse five. He is righteous. And third, our God is merciful. I want to ask you, what are we questioning in our life? What specific attributes of God do we question in our life when we're going through trials? Is it not these three right here? Graciousness, that God is gracious, that God is righteous or just, that this is going on in our life, and that God is merciful. Gracious is the Lord means that he's one who has pity. Righteous and just, this is God's character, and merciful, and notice, our God is merciful. Who is the psalmist speaking to as he is sharing this psalm? He's speaking to the great congregation. He's saying, our God, worship with me, people. God is good. He is merciful. Now you see what went on in my life. I want to share that with you so you can join in worship. Trials and hardships have, secondly, a beautiful way of bringing us back, not only to meditate on God's character, but bring us into the very presence of God. Verse 7 says, return, O my soul, to your rest. Where is the place of rest in our life? Why does God allow hardships in our life? Because oftentimes, typically, we're not in a place where we should be. Our gaze is not on the Lord. Our orientation of life is that we are building our own kingdom. And God has to stop us and to teach us, build his kingdom. Return, O my soul, to the rest. Rest is pictured as the still waters and the green pastures of Psalm 23. And, and we have to see that the psalmist is not silent here. He is preaching to himself. Return, O my soul, to your rest. He's, he's speaking to himself instead of listening to himself. He's reminding himself what he needs, who he is in God. As believers on this side of the cross, we understand that our ultimate rest is found in Christ alone. We sing the last song about satisfaction in the Lord, about rest in him. Christ himself says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, rest does not escape from the battle. I want you to hear this. Rest does not escape from the battle. Rest is an abiding peace and confidence in Christ in the midst of the trial or the battle or the hardship. So as we continue looking at this psalm, what is the, the prayer a product of? How, why, why does the psalmist pray once again in verse six? The Lord preserves the simple, the inexperienced, the untried. 
If we were to rewrite this verse, it would say something like this, the Lord protects those who cannot help themselves. I was trying to feed my son this morning at breakfast at the hotel in the lobby. He can't feed himself. He's 11 months old. He takes the spoon, and guess what he does? He just starts whacking the, whacking the plate. I don't think whacking the plate's going to get any food into his mouth. He has to scoop it up, bring it to his mouth, put it in, and eat. He's helpless. I mean, he could use his hands, but then he'd make a huge mess. He is not able to feed himself unless someone comes alongside of him, like his father, sits down and feeds him. This is what the picture and image is here of the simple person. They understand that this hardship is too big for them. They understand that they cannot overcome on their own. They understand that all that they're going to accomplish by trying to fix their own issues in life is like a child banging a spoon on the plate. They're not going to be able to receive the nourishment that they need. Spurgeon writes this, do not mothers always care for the tiniest child or for that one which is most sick? And is it not true that our weakness, our weakness holds God's strength and leads him to bow his omnipotence to our rescue? God preserves the psalmist because he's committing him to, he's committing himself to God. When I was brought low, he saved me. In verse 4, he called on the name of the Lord. He leaned into him. The more that I think about just the reason and why life exists, and if you think about this, a lot of life between the time of our conversion to the time of our death is full of trials and hardships. The time of life between the good time is full of hurt and pain. And why so? Because God desires to glorify himself. Think about 2 Corinthians with me for a moment. 2 Corinthians, we read about Paul in chapter 12 where he asks three times, Lord, would you take this, this uh, thorn out of my flesh? Lord, I, I can't do this any longer. And, and note this, he only asks him three times. He doesn't ask him anymore. <laughs> he realized after three times that the Lord is not answering, then this must be something that I just need to live with in my life. But he leans on the Lord. He says, my, his grace is sufficient for me. Christ's grace is sufficient. You see, God keeps us in these kind of moments and stages in our life so that we cry out to him, so that he gets the glory. You see, when we try to fix things on our own, we do not give the glory to God. We are glory robbers instead of glory givers. But when we lean on the Lord, on his character, we can give glory to him once again. Remember the cycle in the psalm. The hardship of life leads us to prayer because of our states and leads to an answer because of God's character. And we have an answer because of God's character, because God's character is inseparable from his work. Because of God who is, because God is who he is, he does what he does. He is gracious, righteous, and merciful. And if he would like to act graciously or righteously or mercifully, he can do so because nothing is stopping him from what he, who he is to what he does. You know, sometimes we want to love our children. Sometimes we want the best for our children, but for some reason, our desires and our character do not always come to fruition because there are barriers that we cannot overcome because we're limited. But you see, God is not limited. God can do whatever he pleases. And so if God desires to be gracious, he will be gracious in your life. He desires to be merciful, he will be. If he desires to be just, he will be. And so God's character is inseparable from his work because what he desires to do, he always does without limit. We see in these next verses how God dealt bountifully with him. Trials accomplished, they increase our love for God, they remind us of the character of God. Thirdly, they display the work of God, verses 8 to 11. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. You have delivered, you are the one who saved me. What the psalmist is doing, he's covering a variety of circumstances. He speaks of the soul, the eyes, and the feet, life, emotional, directional needs. It's like an invitation to the hearers that he is speaking to so that they apply the psalm into their own life. 
But more so, we know Hebrew poetry, and this is just simply parallelism, when he is saying these three different things, soul from death, eyes from tears, and feet from stumbling, simply to say this one important thing. When God saves you, he saves you completely. When God delivers you, he delivers you completely, mind, body, and soul. This is the powerful work of God in our life. God helped him up and prevented him from stumbling. He walked with him to protect him from his enemies. When God intervened, there was no need of any other intervention. It was finished. In Jude 24, I love this doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. This is the exaltation, the exclamation of someone who is walking with God and who God is upholding. Now look with me. This doesn't just stop with deliverance. In verse 8, we see the deliverance. But what happens in verse 9? I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. This is key, and I don't want you to miss this this morning. What the psalmist does, he does not waste his trials. This trial is leading the psalmist to a resolve in his life. He is making good use of his deliverance. He doesn't just say, thank you, Lord. Now I'm going to move on in my life. I'm going to continue it just in my career, in my marriage, in my parenting, in my friendships. But he is saying, I will move on into these things with a fresh resolve. I will move on to live my life conscious of your will. This is what it means to walk before the Lord. I will walk before the Lord. Walking an Old Testament term meaning to be with God, to walk in love, faith, and obedience. Speaking about the relationship that one has with the Lord. And I believe that God helps us to come out of trials in a meditative state, does he not? Really, God leads us in a meditative state so we can ask these questions. Lord, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to maybe purge out of my life? Or how can I be more aware of your presence? This is why we read James this morning, who writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You see, Peter echoes the same thing. In this, the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The faith may be found to what? To result in praise and glory. When? At Christ's coming. At Christ's second coming. So Peter's telling us, it's okay to go through these things in your life. And it is okay that they're ongoing in your life. Because when you lean in on the Lord, you pray to him, he gets the glory. And though although the psalmist is making this resolve, I want you to see it wasn't always like this. The psalmist was wavering. There was a moment of desperation in his, in his life. In verse 10, he said, I believed when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. A moment of desperation that is common in trials. Despair leads us to say things we shouldn't say, to say things we really don't mean, he believed, he believed that this was it. I believed when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I believed there was no hope. Is that some of you this morning as you're coming here on Sunday? Coming to worship the Lord, but there are things that are going on in your life, and you've really lost hope that anything would really change. You've lost hope that God could intervene, You've lost hope that God really is working. 
And you're in verses 10 and 11 with the psalmist, and you're saying in your alarm, all mankind are liars, or everyone is false, no one can be trusted, I can't lean on anybody. We must be reminded that God, because of his character and because of his person and his work, can lead us to a place where we get to verse 12 and say, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits? God is so good, he sees our hearts. He knows what we really believe, although sometimes we do not say the things that we believe on our tongue. And so what is your attitude when trials come? Really, the, the question here is, do we see the bigger picture or are we stuck in the situation? Looking vertically gives you hope. Looking horizontally leads to despair. And when God does resolve, and when God does deliver, you do resolve to walk closer to him. So this leads us to the main question in this psalm. What shall I render, what shall I repay to the Lord for all his benefits to me? <clears throat> so studying through this passage, I realize this is the question of a con contemplative person. Somebody who is thinking. Someone who is a thinker, not someone who just goes rotely through life one thing after another, not pausing to meditate on what God is doing. This is somebody who really has paused to think about God, what is going on in my life, why is it happening, leading the psalmist to say, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits? This is someone whose heart has, after he has meditated, exploded with gratitude for all that he has done because he remembered. You see, the biggest issue that occurs in our life that could be a hindrance to worshiping God, which is the purpose of our life, are the trials. But the number one thing that the psalmist teaches, especially the heart psalms that we study, is how to worship God in the midst of the trials that are going on in our life. It always begins with remembering. Remembering who God is, his character, and remembering what God has done, his work. Leads us then to submit to the Lordship of Christ and say, Lord, if this is going on in my life, I trust you and I will lean on you, which then leads us ultimately to worship him through the acts that we worship him in the church, through body life, through serving in various capacities on Sundays or in midweek. If we are not worshiping the Lord with joy and gladness, it is because we are forgetting his person and his work in our life. And God is using trials to bring us back to remember who he is and what he has done. And so this is where you reach the mountaintop from the valley that you were in. And once again, we see the cycle. Hardship of life leads to prayer, leads to answer because of God's character and thanksgiving because of God's acting. I know that as a church, you have gone through many things in the last couple years. I know that it was not easy. I know that there were heartaches, brokenness of friendships. And this is what God was doing and he's working through church, through Grace Hill, just as he was working through Mission Bible Church, just as he's working through Gateway Bible Church. There are things that God allows in our life so that we can come to a place like verse 12 and say, Lord, you are still good in my life. Lord, what am I going to repay you for all of your good benefits towards me? These are all acts of public worship that we read of in these verses, in verses 14 and 18, in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord. The assumption is that your personal thanks will be shared in public worship. This is what we ought to be practicing as a church. On Sundays, we come together and someone comes up front and shares a testimony of how God was good and faithful to them in their life. What does that do? It encourages our faith and keeps us pressing on. This is a benefit to all the people, to everyone who, who comes on a given Sunday. You see, Psalm 40 echoes the same idea. I've told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I've not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. He, 
He didn't say, God does this amazing thing in my life, but I'm just going to keep it to myself. You know, it's that time when you come together for a home group or small group and, and the leader says, you guys have anything to share? How can we praise God this week? And, you, and you're just cricket, cricket. You hear that thumbnail, you know, that thumbtack drop on the floor? And as the, the small group leader, you're just wondering, what's going on? <laughs> Are people walking with the Lord? Is God active in their life? There should have been something that happened this week. There's always something that we could praise God for. He has not hidden his deliverance in his heart. He's, I've spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness. You see, if you're walking with the Lord, even in the midst of the trials, when someone bumps into you, you have thanksgiving to outpour from your life. And friends, this is helpful. This helps to build faith. There are enough conversations, and I'll tell you as a parent of little kids, and you will then tell me as parents of teenagers, and then others of you will tell me as parents of kids that are married already, that there's enough to talk about in terms of hardships of life, the brokenness of the world, what's going on in California, what the governors do, and what new laws have come out, and then also the pain of sin in our life. What we need to do more often is speak about and what we need to do is hear about what God is doing in our life, that he is doing a great work. Sharing how the gospel that you share with a coworker has been somewhat received and they're asking you more questions about the faith. Sharing how God is opening a door for a new job, how the wayward son or daughter has come home, how the health has returned. How God protected you from a car accident, how through a season of darkness, the Lord has brought you out, or how he has stopped you, the dry, the dry spell of your walk, and brought you into vibrant living. But before you share, you must first be aware. You must first pause. You must first meditate. You must first think on what God has done. The question, what shall I give or repay to the Lord, is a wonderful question that we ask week in and week out. This is not a repayment like we can ever repay God, but it is a desire of a heart that wants to please God and wants to thank God. Psalmist at the end of this hardship is saying, Lord, how can I thank you? How can I praise you? What, what can I do? How can I benefit your body? How can I benefit the church through this personal thing that I've experienced in my life? His cup is overflowing and he's bumping into people and he can't help but share God's faithfulness and proclaim how good God is. And so here are the things that the psalmist does. We're gonna go over them briefly. First, it's an expression of thanksgiving. Look with me in verse 13. I will lift up the cup of salvation. It's a, the cup of salvation is a cup of victory. And really what he's saying is, I will confess before the assembly and raise the goblet in order to thank him. It's a way of expressing thanksgiving for the blessings that he has received. This was a, referring to a wine offering which was part of a ritual of thanksgiving. So he's expressing thanksgiving. Then we see the prayer of praise. He calls on the name of the Lord refers to a prayer that is part of public worship. He's praying before, before the people. Prayer of praise, Lord, thank you. This is why I love liturgies. Liturgies are so good. We need these prayers of confession, prayers of praise, prayers of thanksgiving to constantly remind us of God's active work in our life. Then he offers sacrifices. He pay my vows, we read, to the Lord in verse 14. Sacrifice of thanksgiving. Paying vows is to really offer the sacrifices that he's promised to make. He made a vow to the Lord. The Lord, if this is going to happen, I will pay a vow to you. God has answered. And the thank offerings were a variety of peace offerings to celebrate God's answer of prayer. And in verse 15, we see that ultimately all of this is happening because precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. God loves this psalmist and all that he's going through in his life. Most likely this is David. And precious in the sight of the Lord is the life of David. Precious in the sight of God is your walk. Is your relationship with him, is your faith. It is precious to the Lord. The Lord is not indifferent whether or not 
his faithful servants are going through hardships. He does not regard their death lightly. It costs the Lord to see his faithful ones die. And so for believers, death is not an accident, but it really is an appointment because the psalmist delivers, God delivers the psalmist in this moment. And so as we are living life, we are under his watch until our work on earth is done. And so what does is, what is thanksgiving produce? Number one, it causes God to be glorified. We leave this celebration this morning of Christ's victory over sin and death. On Sunday, when we come together, we rehearse the gospel as a church. We leave this place with thanksgiving, glorifying the Lord for what he has done, and it causes others of us to be encouraged. Hey, you're going through the same thing as I'm going through in my life? Oh, Lord, you have delivered the Lord has delivered you from what he has delivered for me months ago or what I'm going through in my life right now. So thanksgiving is so important. How are you doing in that category this morning? With all that is going on in the world, in our state, in our cities, in our life, with our children, if you were to write a list of your thoughts of this past week, which one would weigh out more? The thanksgivings to the Lord? or the complainings to the Lord. We need to pause and to reflect so that our Thanksgiving list increases. And while we're gonna be driving home today, if the kids are getting rowdy in the car, my wife and I will play this lovely game. It's called the Thanksgiving game. It's very simple. You can play it when you're driving home from church. It's simply this. Share something you're thankful about. And we're gonna keep talking until we run out of things. We, we praise God, therefore we were able to meditate on what God is doing in our life. So this morning we spoke on, from trials to thanksgiving, what you don't expect hardships to accomplish in our life. You see, life does not only go not as like we expected, but the trials producing us something that we don't expect either. Maybe you're going through a hardship or trial this morning and understand that God is producing something in you and through you in these trials. Life is very much like a map. You know, right now the snow is falling and many of you are gonna probably go to Lake Tahoe in the next couple weeks. And you're gonna plug in the directions into your map and you know how to get to Lake Tahoe, South Lake Tahoe, North Lake Tahoe, Incline Village. And it's going to tell you that you're gonna have to take the 80 probably for driving from here. But what happens if the 80 is closed? You're gonna have to take the 50. What happens if the 50 is closed? You're gonna stay home. There's no other way to get there. The reality is this. We know where we are going, our destination. But the way that we get there is not up to us. The way that the directions are leading in our life are not up to us. God is maneuvering. God is telling us when we're going to have a turnout and we're going to stop and take a pit stop. God is going to tell us when we're going to be driving next to the cliffs he is the one who is leading our life because our life is not about us, it's about him. It's about his purposes and his glory. And we as believers, when we were dunked into that water and we came out to the newness of life, we said, Lord, I am a living sacrifice and I lay down my life on the altar, Romans 12.1. Use me as you wish. This is what we proclaim when we come back every Sunday. Trials have a starting point and have a destination, but God will sometimes take us like he did the people of Israel to increase our love for him, to remind us of his character, to display his work, and to produce thanksgiving. And so in summary, I have some final thoughts that I want to leave with you to navigate trials, and the first one is this. Remember that God is the great actor. Instead of doubting, be trusting. Instead of doubting, be trusting. Remember, he is the great actor. Secondly, Trust that you are the blessed beneficiary. Trust that really all the things that are going on in your life are actually for his good. And I heard today, this morning, that your pastor is preaching in Romans 8, verse 28, it says something along the lines of, God works all things together for good to those who love him. Instead of complaining, be grateful. You see, contentment is that sweet inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit that submits and delights in God's fatherly disposal in every condition or situation of life. 
And the third final thought is that proclaim, proclaim so that the church is the encouraged body. Instead of discussing discouraging hardships, be encouraging. Share with others what God is doing in your life. Thinking back to Moses, David, Hannah, Lazarus, we find one more person that walked this path. It was Christ himself. Think about the gospel. How is God going to liberate and save humanity? How is freedom going to come from bondage to sin? How is the Father's plan going to unfold? How are sinners going to be reconciled with God? How is the chasm going to be bridged? Christ comes in, the light of the world. Here is the Savior, accept him. Here he is before you, here is salvation. And he is rejected by his own. The plan seems not to be working. The disciples don't understand what Jesus is doing but it was just not the hour yet of his coming. And here comes the hour of glorification. How will the Son of Man be glorified? How will salvation be accomplished? It's the unexpected path, the horrible crucifixion. The King of glory becomes the man of sorrows, beaten, mocked, scorned, and then crucified on the cross. And do you think for one second this morning that your loving, caring, heavenly father is not going to take you on the same path as he did his son? He's hanging on the cross and he cries out, Father, forgive them. And no one expected this. The path was different, but the goal was the same, salvation. The lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. So as you walk in life, remember God is the greater actor. Christ is the example. He is your elder brother. As, as Hebrew says, when, you're, when your hands are drooping and your weak, knees are weak, look to Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith, who already walked this path. So I want to close this morning with the same words that we began with, the song God Moves. And hopefully, after this message, they resonate a little bit deeper with you. William Cooper writes, You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweets will be the flower. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Father, we thank you this morning for your words of life. We thank you this morning for reminding us that you are acting in our life like you did in the life of the psalmist. You are reminding us that you have, have set your son on this path. And as we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and we follow you, the path is similar. Because you want to produce in us something that we cannot accomplish on our own. You increase our faith, our love for you. You remind us of your character and your work. And ultimately, this just leads to us thanking you and proclaiming your goodness to the great congregation. May you teach us to be these kind of people. And may we continue to be these kind of people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.